over time, this is, can, this is really worth a fortune. Um, the value of that kind of tax-free compounding cannot be fully appreciated until you put it into a spreadsheet and graph it. Um, it is mind-blowing. Let's get ready to scale. guys, thanks for joining us for yet another episode of Ready to Scale. Today, our guest is Bernard Reese. Bernard is the Chief Education Officer of Reesher Financial Services, which specializes on investor tax tools to accelerate and protect the growth of investors' assets and wealth. Prior to founding Reesher, Bernard served as the Director of Co-Metrics Partners, focused on financial consulting and due diligence. He graduated from Excelsior University with a 4.0 in with a BS in accounting. And I have to give a shout out to Scott, one of our investors who referred Bernard to the show, saying that he is a whiz when it comes to anything self-directed IRA, as well as other financial subjects. And he's joining us today from NYC. So Bernard, welcome to the show. Jeanette, thanks so much for having me. Uh, honored to do this. Uh, very passionate about these kind of conversations and about tax um, tax education uh, with a really heavy real estate focus. Well, we are honored to have you. And given the fact that it is, you know, K-1 season, I thought it would be very interesting for investors to hear uh, a lot more about basically uh, K-1s, cost segregation, forced depreciation, the benefits of that. And then last but not least, I thought we could also talk a little bit about uh, some pro tips for self-directed IRAs. Does that sound good to you? That sounds great. Fantastic. So let's jump in. So first of all, let's talk about accelerated depreciation. Um, you know, these are big words. We throw the terms around a lot. Everyone smiles and nods because we all know they're important. But in reality, you know, there's a lot of complexity to uh, accelerating depreciation and specifically when you're utilizing cost segregation. So, you know, please, you the expert, explain to us what really goes into cost segregation, why does it matter? And how do we accelerate these depreciation? Uh, Jeanette, I love these questions. And I wish more investors would ask these questions. Uh, because to so many people, it's just a number, um, you know, hidden somewhere, buried in some box on a form K-1. Uh, but it really is important to understand what it is and what goes on underneath the hood. Uh, because what really matters to you is what stands behind that number. Uh, what kind of work? What's the real work product uh, that creates that number? So to really understand that, uh, we're going to take a couple of steps back um, and do depreciation 101, and then we'll be able to get to these advanced cost segregation questions. Uh, so what is depreciation? Literally, you know, depreciation is about something wearing out over time, wear and tear, obsolescence. Uh, but what we're talking about is the tax concept of depreciation, which since the 1980s really has nothing to do with actual wear and tear and obsolescence. Um, and that's really what has made it so attractive and has been a boon for real estate investors. So pre-1980s, it actually had something to do with obsolescence. Uh, but the tax code changed. And what Congress came in and said, hey, we're going to let you take a tax deduction 
uh, for your capital investments over a specified time frame, um, even if your asset is actually appreciating. So it may be going up in value. You may have bought a multifamily property. You may have 300 units that are going up in value each year. Despite that, you can take a depreciation tax deduction. Uh, so where does that number come from? How do we arrive at these depreciation numbers? When you have expenditures, that means when you spend money on items related to your business or investment, some of those things get immediately expensed. Um, you buy supplies on that, you spend $10,000 on supplies. On that year's tax return, you take a $10,000 deduction for your supplies. Uh, but then there are other items that get capitalized. Now, capitalizing is something that from a tax perspective is not really great. Um, so when you invest something that has provides a long-term asset, um, you don't get to claim that tax deduction. So if you buy a capital asset for $10,000, uh, that actually has to get depreciated over time, which means to say each year, whether that be 5, 7, 15, 20, 27 and a half or 39 years, you claim a portion of that expenditure as a tax deduction. And that's what we call depreciation. So as you can imagine, we would rather claim a year one. We'd rather claim it all in year one rather than spreading it out over many, many years. Um, let's keep this with the focus on multifamily residential real estate. Um, so your typical depreciation is going to take place over 27 and a half years. Uh, if we can accelerate that and kind of get those depreciations sooner, um, that's where cost segregation comes in. So before I keep talking, because um, there is so much more to say, any questions about that or anything about this should be clarified. Uh, no, I think you did a really good job of, uh, of even giving the history of how we actually have arrived at where we are uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, having depreciation in place for tax uh, purposes for real estate investors. But I do love what you're saying, and I know exactly where we're going next, but I'm going to point out that a lot of people don't want to hold an asset for that long. So here at Blue Lake, our business plan typically is to hold the assets for three to five years. So I agree with you 100% that when we're talking about year one and capturing as much, as much loss as possible right at the beginning to offset all of those capital gains that are coming in through our, our positive passive income streams, this is right the strategy. This is a key component for all real estate investors. So, of course, we do that through cost segregation, which I, again, will hand back over to you because you're far more the expert on that than I. Okay, let's keep, let's keep the conversation going. Um, and so let's for a moment talk about what is the real value of cost segregation specifically and tax deductions more generally. Uh, because having the big picture view um, and viewing this from a more global financial perspective uh, is really important. Uh, so it's great to get a K-1 that shows a $100,000 non-cash loss, right? Because that's what depreciation represents. We don't want real losses, uh, but we, it's great to get a tax loss that doesn't actually represent an economic loss. Uh, that's the beauty of depreciation tax deductions. Uh, now, the value of that is not just that $100,000 tax deduction. The real value and where this gets amplified and compounded 
is, okay, now you just saved a bundle in taxes, which you can reinvest and compound. So the real value of cost segregation and real estate investing, there's this massive snowball effect if you keep reinvesting your profits. So you buy an asset, cost segregation, big tax deductions, less money gets paid to the IRS, more money for you to invest, put that into another asset, cost segregation, again, more money in your pocket, more money to reinvest. Over time, this is, can, this is really worth a fortune. Uh, the value of that kind of tax-free compounding cannot be fully appreciated until you put it into a spreadsheet and graph it. Um, it is mind-blowing to see what the impact of that is over time. So that's where the value of tax deductions are. Um, it's not just, you know, to really appreciate it, you can't just look at what you do on your current year tax return. You've got to see the big picture, which is really so much bigger. Um, again, the year one tax deduction is great, uh, but the full appreciation uh, is really takes, you got you to graph that. Uh, so let's get back to the technical details of uh, cost segregation. So if you buy a property, um, what you're doing is typically you're going to be pay a lump sum cost for an asset. So the asset costs $50 million. Uh, now, now that you've got that asset, you've got to allocate the costs um, in order to claim depreciation. Uh, so the question gets to be, do you allocate all of that? You know, do you claim all of that over 27 and a half years? Well, that's good, but we can do better um, if we want to claim more deductions sooner. So something that doesn't actually get enough attention, but warrants more attention is land allocation. So the, in a cost segregation study, the heart and core of a study um, is taking your improvements, which is the buildings, the parking lots, the asphalt, uh, right? The, the lighting, the flooring, the various components of what went into the, onto the land and breaking those out into specific categories. But the real work of cost segregation is on the improvements. Land is not depreciable. So land is something that you cannot claim a depreciation deduction for. So the work of cost segregation, the heart of the cost segregation study is taking out, taking a por portion of the cost that is allocated to the improvements and then breaking that out into subcategories. Uh, now, the land allocation is not technically part of the cost segregation study, but it is a very, very important input. Uh, because by manipulating a land allocation, you can artificially manipulate uh, what your cost seg study report says. Uh, so we do try to educate people both when we do a cost segregation feasibility analysis. So we do those free, obviously, anybody bought a property or did renovations. Um, they want to get a sense of what benefits they'll get when they do a study. Uh, so we do a kind of a bit of a pro forma. Um, and that we provide a number, kind of an expected tax deduction number. But we explain to people 
uh, that it's really important to understand that there are certain things, certain inputs into these studies that they really have to appreciate to understand how these numbers can be manipulated. Uh, so I can give you uh, two, a COSEC study for the same property um, with the, uh, the approach to the actual cost segregation would be identical on the two studies, yet one can show a higher deduction than the other. How is that? Exactly. Um, well, one thing we can do is we can say, oh, we're just going to allocate 10 or 15% to land, right? So if we allocate, say, 15% of the total purchase price to land, so if that's a $50 million purchase um, and we allocate $5 million to land, and in the other study, we do a $10 million land allocation, um, one study is going to show a higher deduction than the other because we're either one of studies working with $40 million in depreciable assets and the other is working with $45 million. Uh, what is the true approach to land allocation? Obviously, anything tax-related is not something that, you know, you're really, that the IRS has left to chance. So there is a methodology or a number of methodologies uh, that are used, uh, that can be used for uh, land allocation. Um, Jeanette, is it possible for me to do a screen share? Yeah, absolutely. For those of you that are tuning in, if you are not aware, we have a YouTube channel uh, called Ready to Scale Multifamily Investing, where you can come and see these slides. The impact of land value on cost segregation. So, you know, we kind of did an overview already of what the impact is. The allocation to land um, will decrease the amount of depreciable basis that's left. Uh, so what is, how is it allocated? One way to do it is to get a really full scope land appraisal. It means you call it an appraiser, a real estate appraiser, and they determine um, what the land value is. Alternatively, um, there can be a kind of more limited scope land appraisal, or you can get a broker's price opinion. You get some comps. Uh, then there's, I'm gonna, there's a county tax assessor's allocation. So this is something that's done relatively easily. Uh, the way this is done, um, every property um, has, every county assesses property tax and your property tax bill will have an allocation to land and to improvements. Now the county tax assessor may be valuing your $50 million asset at 25 million. Uh, so the actual value may not be the same but um, we can look at the county tax assessor and see, hey, the county tax assessor's value, um, you know, of that $25 million value that they've assessed it at, um, they're allocating 30% of that to land. So we can kind of take that same 30-70 ratio and then apply it to the $50 million purchase price. Um, another method is the replacement cost method. Uh, which is essentially this go, this is um, taking the, what would it cost to rebuild this building from scratch today. And so say it would cost $45 million to reconstruct this building. So if you paid $50 million for the asset, um, we'll take $45 million to recreate the asset. So what's left for land is $5 million. Interesting. So now, the, I, assume, I assume the best approach to this would be to actually... Uh, possibly gather that data from all these different sources 
kind of cross-reference them and then use either the most favorable one or maybe a reasonable range um, or average between them? What do you advise people to do then? So yeah, what I'll talk about the conceptual side and then we'll talk about practically um, what happens and what, what gets done. And the last one that's listed here is rule of thumb method, which is not really much of a method, but it is widely used. But people should be aware of that, uh, which is you just take somebody says, all right, uh, we're just going to allocate 10, 15, 20, 25, 30% to land, um, you know, kind of on a whim. Uh, so this is something that is, um, it is fairly prevalent, but it really has no basis. Um, yeah, I wouldn't want to be in a position where I'm asked to back up that assumption and I have no data to uh, support it. Yeah, so that is one of the kind of, now you can imagine, obviously, in places like California, New York City, uh, this gets challenged quite a bit, uh, particularly by the state authorities. Um, the IRS for the last 10 years has kind of been defanged. We'll see what happens going forward. Uh, but the IRS has challenged this in several cases. And the IRS, in fact, will default to using the county tax assessor. Interesting. So if you want to do something other than the county tax assessor, um, then what you would want to do is get some sort of appraisal, um, kind of put it in your files, does it get filed to the tax return, and then you know keep that you know, in the event that there is a challenge, you know, you can have that backed up. Uh, so this actually was, there's a tax court case we've got highlighted here where you can see the, the IRS just said, hey, we're going to go with the county tax assessor um, and they won in court. So this is something that when you do a, when you do a cost segregation study, um, it really lets itself allow some artificial manipulation because the real study is taking the portion of the purchase price that's allocated to the building and slicing and dicing that. Uh, but the starting point is, okay, what was allocated to the building? Uh, when we do cost segregation studies, we actually prepare them with the county assessor allocation. And we let clients know, hey, if you want something else, we can always adjust that. Uh, so we default to uh, tax assessor, but... You know, we leave it open whether a client or the accountants want something else. Uh, we always adjust that for them. Well, I know all I can say is I'm really glad that we hire professionals to uh, to do this for us because it definitely sounds complicated. So now let's talk about a question that I know is extremely important to investors because I'm asked all the time. And unfortunately, um, you know, I've learned I really can't provide an answer on, which is how do people approximate? their K-1 losses? So that's a tough one because um, if, and let's clarify, if you're referring to, you know, how can they approximate that before they get the K-1, um, you know, before they get a draft K-1, it's a very tough one to answer. And I would be hesitant uh, to provide that answer. There are just too many there are too many variables. Now, if you've got your cost segregation study in hand um, and you have really, really solid bookkeeping, um, you're able you know, to kind of do that back of the napkin. 
But I would really say that's something that you'd want your, you know, your accountant, the fund or syndication accountant to provide something for it just because no two, uh, no two items are alike. Um, and it's really tough to know uh, because what is your land allocation going to be? Uh, what is going to be, uh, you know, how are, what are the various expenses that were incurred? It's tough. So we can, I, my feeling is that with things like that, it really is, sometimes it's better not to provide an answer. Um, there are other things that will also, the idiosyncrasies of any LP's tax profile will impact this, right? So losses, a K-1 is kind of an informational report, right? It then goes on a tax return, but what will it do to the tax return, right? It goes on to say, it go, ultimately it flows through to an investor's uh, form 1040. That's their individual tax return. Uh, now, what else is not 1040 will impact how the K-1 um, affects that tax return. And there really is no way to know how that's going to work. Um, and come tax time, there are many investors uh, that find out that there was some sort of input that they didn't have um, that kind of, you know, doesn't give them the exact outcome they anticipated. Uh, so I think it's probably in so many areas of taxation or tax-related items, um, it's really sometimes it's more prudent not to answer that question because the only thing worse than a, you know, no response, you know, is, an, it, is a wrong one. And sometimes with the most well-intentioned uh, responses are not going to, you know, are not necessarily wrong, but they can be misconceived or misperceived uh, because that investor may go to his, to get his tax return done. And, you know, when the impact on his tax return differs from what he expected, uh, he may not fully grasp, he or she may not fully grasp that, okay, all they told me was this number, that was correct, right? But they didn't know my own whole 1040. Uh, but they might sometimes that kind of communication, uh, things get lost in communication and people don't get the outcome that they anticipated. Um, they may, they may, you know, kind of shift the blame to the wrong place. Um, so my, my perspective on matters like that is better not to provide um, that kind of answer. Um, I think every individual's accountant should be best positioned to give them that number. So if you, you know, if they, they would tell the, their accountant, you know, I made this and this investment, um, their accountant who knows their personal 1040 and what else may be on there um, is the one that is best positioned um, to give them um, an answer to that. And in fact, even as a CPA myself, when we work with clients, we're doing cost segregation studies, we're doing 1031 exchanges or self-directed retirement accounts. Our preference is always to work with clients that have um, great tax advisors. Uh, number one, it helps us be really effective and efficient. And we know we're really providing value when we do a cost segregation or 1031 exchange for them. Uh, we communicate very effectively with our CPAs because we're CPAs ourselves. Um, and we know that their CPA has reviewed this and kind of sees the big picture and sees some of the things 
that we cannot. Very good advice. And I agree with you. I think it's a, a good best practice to uh, simply, you know, have investors work closely with their team, their CPA, uh, that are aware of all of the details of their own financial situations. Um, you know, great advice. I couldn't agree more. Now, uh, let's talk about all of these pro tips that I was told that you have for self-directed IRAs. But before we do, a word from our sponsor. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sun Belt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. All right. So Bernard, without further ado, what are some pro tips for investors that utilize self-directed IRAs? Okay. How much time do we got? Because we can talk for hours about this topic. <laughs> Give us your top three. Okay. Top three. Number one, recognize that um, the real driver of self-directed success is your assets. Self-directed retirement accounts are very powerful, uh, but what they really serve to do is amplify the impact of great investments. Uh, so the driving force and what makes it a kind of a no-brainer um, and people should never lose sight of when they're using um, self-directed IRAs, 401ks, qualified retirement plans um, is the reason you're doing this is because you are investing in an asset that is giving you um, great risk-adjusted returns um, you know, and great diversification. It all starts with great finances. Um, that's what drives everything. Number two, make sure to get the optimal account set up for yourself. Um, out there on the web, um, there are... There's a lot of noise about self-directed retirement accounts, uh, but getting the wrong one uh, for your tax profile um, can create adverse tax repercussions that are hard to correct. Um, and getting the right one can have some incredible um, tax upside. Uh, so you make sure you have to make sure to get the optimal account type um, set up for yourself. Um, and again, that's going to be based on your personal tax profile. So we've got, I'm going to scroll down here to SDIRA solo 401k QRP. Which for those of you listening in, this is an incredible website. And uh, I'll definitely make sure, Bernard, that you share with the listeners how they can access this wealth of information. So this is a flow chart. Now, there are a lot of terms that get bounded about. Um, definitions are really important. Uh, so let's talk about that for a moment. IRA stands for Individual Retirement Account or Individual Retirement Arrangement. Um, QRP stands for Qualified Retirement Plan. Each of those have a couple of different variations, um, but 
you know, sometimes with a lot of the noise, some of the basics get forgotten. Uh, so a Roth IRA, traditional IRA, those all fall, a SEP IRA, simple IRA, those fall, all fall under the IRA umbrella. Uh, those can be set up um, as what we call checkbook IRAs, uh, which syndicators tend to love uh, because it really simplifies the paperwork. It makes things really, really easy to invest. Um, investors get the money in a bank account um, and they just write a check. There's no custodian paperwork to do um, distributions, investing, investing really, really easy. Um, on the other side, uh, qualified retirement plan. Um, that's an umbrella term. Uh, and, you know, the most well-known form of qualified retirement plan is a 401k. Um, now, while we do every type of plan structure out there for investors, the overwhelming majority of investors are going to be best served uh, by either having a checkbook IRA or a checkbook solo 401k. There are infinite number of structures which we have experience with, uh, but we've kind of created a streamlined process that works for the overwhelming majority of investors. Uh, so on the QRP side, um, you know, for now, assume that's synonymous with solo 401k. does not have to be. Uh, but the QRP that's going to work for most investors and is a no-brainer if you fix your tax profile is going to be solo 401k. So if you're what we got to look at, if your money, typically investors are funding these by rolling over or transferring funds from another retirement account. Uh, so if the money is coming from an after-tax or Roth IRA, it cannot be rolled into a qualified retirement plan. So that right there is going to dictate that they get into an IRA. Um, in contrast, if the money is coming from a traditional IRA, uh, you know, traditional pre-tax IRA, then you know they, that 401k option remains available to them. However, they would have to have a business, a qualified retirement plan, which there's no more complex area to the tax code and labor law. Uh, than qualified retirement plans. But at their essence, the definition of a qualified retirement plan is a trust set up for the benefit of employees or a self-employed individual. So if you do not have, if you do not meet that definition, no matter, you can have 400 pages that say QRP stamped on the front, it's not a QRP. Because Very interesting. Right. It's not the piece of paper that matters. It's got to fit with your tax profile. Um, and this is where we see a lot of mistakes. Uh, folks that either don't have any kind of business or have a business that doesn't meet the definition of what the tax code would call a business for sponsoring one of these. So that's the key thing. Get the right account set up, because if it's not if it's the right account, you get all this upside. If it's the wrong account, kind of things are on the wrong track from the get-go and very, very hard to rectify. Excellent advice. And what about tip number three? Okay. Tip number three is operate the plan compliantly. So you got the right plan. You've got to operate it compliantly. Uh, my preference um, is uh, for and folks to use these for passive investments. Um, while we have clients that use them for every single 
type of investing out there. Uh, I, you know, we do consulting as well for many folks that are not our clients. So we get to see what's happening across the industry. Um, and when you're not passive, that creates a lot of opportunities uh, to violate the rules and potentially lose all the upside that's available. So these accounts are really powerful. Once, if with a solid education, using them correctly um, is not a big deal. But when you're passive, you're in what I call the no-brainer zone. There's really very little opportunity to mess it up. Um, so it's get the right plan for your profile, then operate it compliantly. Um, so those are the three tips. Um, understand that it's really driven by great assets. Number two, get the get the right the right plan for your tax profile. Um, there are some, in, you know, there are a lot of there's lots of info on the web. Um, creating a hyper focus on specific aspects of self directed investing that are kind of a bit of a red herring and distract people from focusing on what really matters, which is again the great investments your tax profile, and then number three, operating them compliantly. Excellent advice, Bernard. Thank you very much. And I hope those of you listening were taking some notes. Um, so now we have arrived to what we call the lightning round questions, which are five questions that I ask all of our guests. Are you ready? Somebody should award me about this. <laughs> then it wouldn't be fun. All right. So when you're not, you know, being a brainiac and helping to create amazing tax strategies and tools for people, what do you actually do for fun? Uh, it's really family and friends. Uh, nothing exciting. Don't go windsurfing or, uh, you know, ice picking. Uh, <laughs> it's just really family time. I wish there was more time of the day to pursue all those great things. Uh, but between family and professional pursuits, you know, you're a busy man. Forward. You're a busy man. Understood. Not, no shame in that at all. Um, now here's one that's interesting. What is something that most people don't know about you? Only one thing. Only one thing. <laughs> um, uh, something that most people don't know about me. Um, okay, I am rediscovering with my kids as I read um, children's books to them, the incredible wisdom and sometimes hidden messages uh, inside of children's books. And that's books catering from toddlers to tweens. Um, I am really developing a new appreciation for so many of the authors uh, that went right over my head when I read these same books when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've had the same experience uh, with my own children through the years. I know exactly what you're talking about. Also, the children's movies uh, that I, you know, missed when I was a kid and I see now as an adult, definitely. Now, let's talk about a book. If you could urge real estate investors to read one book and only one book, what would it be? Um, okay, it's not a specific real estate. It's not a real estate specific book, um, but it impacts your kind of your entire, your entire Weltanschauung uh, would be Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Uh, that's the, it's, there's really, there's a series. Uh, there's Fooled by Randomness, uh, The Black Swan. Uh, he calls it the Incerto. Uh, it's really a series. Any one of those books is a great place to start. Wow. Very interesting. All right. Now here at Blue Lake, 
we love obviously having great returns. You know, we're happy to see our investors thrive and grow wealth, uh, but it's actually not just all about money. And one of our goals is to really live extraordinary lives. So what advice would you give to people that are focused on building an extraordinary life? Be yourself and be true to yourself. Um, there is, every single one of us has something um, really unique uh, to offer. We truly are unique. Um, a lot of the, the big messaging out there um, promoting one form sort of lifestyle or one approach over another, um, it kind of sometimes derails us from trying to be something else or somebody else. Um, and the truth is you'll get the best, probably the best financial life, but more importantly, the best life overall uh, by being true to yourself. Yes, you know, use um, import and assimilate, you know, from the many beautiful things out there, you know, make that part of yourself, pick and choose, um, but ultimately be true to yourself um, and know that, you know, being true to yourself, valuing your innate human value um, and leading from there um, is what's going to get you to, you know, to that magical life. Excellent advice. A divided house cannot stand. Very good advice. All right. And last but not least, if our listeners want to get in touch with you and if they want to get their hands on these tremendous resources that you were sharing today, where can they find you? Sure. Uh, so the what we've got, the website is reshorefinancial.com, R-E-S-U-R-E financial.com. Uh, the education resource free to join is members.reshorefinancial.com. Um, as you can see, it's neatly, uh, there's a lot of info in there, but it's searchable. We broke it out into 1031 exchange, cost segregation, um, self-directed retirement accounts. Um, and then we've got a kind of catch all, which is entity tax strategy, um, asset protection. So almost everything, it's real estate, professional tax status, depreciation, uh, you name it. Um, there's, there's a resource in there. It is searchable um, and we do live videos all the time um, on the website, reshorefinancial.com. Um, every page has a scheduling button. You can schedule a call to speak with somebody in the team, whether you're looking to start a 1031 exchange, cost segregation, um, or self-directed retirement accounts, title and escrow. Um, we make it really easy schedule a Zoom, um, and we look forward to connecting with people. All right, perfect. Well, Bernard, this has been uh, very informative, and I definitely appreciate your time and your expertise that you shared with us. For those of you that joined, thank you so much for listening. We also appreciate your thoughts and ask you to please not forget to like, rate, and review the show. Leave us some comments, and we will see you again. Until then, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.